right, welcome to episode three of Three Rural White Guys. Hey, we're still on a podcast. No one's like shut us down yet, so that's a good thing, right? It is so this far. Is, yeah, this is uh, this is Mike Heaton out of Mount Pleasant, Iowa, in, in rural Southeast Iowa, and I am joined today by Jacob Dodds. How you doing, Jacob? Good. How is everybody out there this week? Doing well, good. I'm alive. Yeah, good. Kellen, hey, I've, I've been. Have town. you been? Have you been double masking? <laughs> I've been double masking. Have you been double? Masking? I'm vaccinated. Oh, you're yeah, back. Yeah, I, I just single mask. Just single mask. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Darn frontline service workers. Frontline service workers. Uh, we love you. You're doing great. Um, Kellen Gracie, are you doing good? How's mm-hmm. life? Mm-hmm. You know what, Mike? Life is great. Good. Life is great. I'm. Uh, I don't have much to complain about. I'm. I'm building a new garage. I don't know if I mentioned that on previous episodes. No, no. There's no bats in that garage, correct? Oh, there might be bats. Might be bats, but uh, we'll get them out. Good. We'll good. get them out. Yeah. And I, I'm really excited today to say that we have our very first guest on the show, and I'm going to let Kellen introduce her. Yeah. Mike, I'm super excited. Our very first guest is Caitlin Slusser. She's an attorney from Cedar Rapids, and uh, she brings quite the perspective to our, our podcast. She has a, a firm rooting and upbringing in Iowa, uh, in rural Iowa in particular, uh, but now lives in one of those big cities, one of those big city folk. I don't know if we can call her big city folk, but, but she lives over in, in Cedar Rapids, and, and uh, I'm really excited to bring her perspective onto the podcast to help us kind of illuminate some of the differences between rural and urban Iowa, as well as uh, some of the expertise she brings in terms of legal representation across the across the state. So welcome, Caitlin. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Kellen. I'm excited to be here. I think um, I can say that this is officially my po- first podcast I've ever participated in, despite listening to, I don't know, probably dozens of hours of podcasts every week. So um, I, I, yeah, I think I'm excited for the opportunity, and I thank you guys for bringing me on. We had you on today, and the, the reason we, we wanted you to be here is because you have this really unique perspective on on the view from both inside rural communities as well as outside rural communities in, in, in 2021, and really a unique perspective on how do we recruit and attract uh, professionals to our rural communities as well as how do we keep people from leaving our communities. There's been this this large out-migration um, for years now uh, of young, educated um uh, high school kids and, and college kids. And we, we were trying to figure out some insight on that to, to really keep our communities vibrant. Uh, we need to figure that out. And so we're really interested in your opinion on that. Be- before we go there, though, before we get into that bigger topic, there are some really relevant issues out in, in, the, in the political sphere, both nationally and, and state, uh, that we wanted to chat with you about as, as a lawyer and get your, your feedback on. Uh, one is is the incredible amount of executive orders that have been uh, put into place by the Biden administration, and and the other at the state level is is I think everyone is talking about is uh, the the school choice quote unquote uh, initiative put forth by uh, Governor Reynolds here in Iowa as well as um, uh, the Republican Party, and I think this is a national movement across a lot of states, quite frankly. And we want to get your opinion on that, um, what what the impact will be on, on rural communities, on on public schools especially. So. Let's chat executive orders first and, and the impact that they're having already on our country. You know, I think it's a good example of how elections really matter and how uh, 
actually uh, how quite quickly uh, things can change when uh, when you vote someone new into office. Uh, you know, one of the ones that I've been especially interested in is lifting the transgender ban in the military because that one always seemed just excessively cruel and without any real justification, uh, except perhaps providing a dog whistle to people who, uh, I guess, have um, you know anti-trans views. And I guess when I when I when I see Biden entering orders like that within the first week. I'm excited to see what comes next. One thing I'd really like to pick your brain about, Caitlin, is is I, I mentioned this last week, and I, I we spent uh, half a second reading out the actual executive order speaking to equity. So I I'd just like to ask what your opinion is. The the Biden administration signed an executive order that said. Essentially, here is what equity means, right? Here's what the definition of equity means across the Biden federal government. So does this matter, right? He signed this executive order that said this is what equity is. Does that even matter? I think, yeah, I think so. Because, you know, one thing that you learn when you uh, start litigating issues is that you're always looking for definitions to pin things up against, right? So if we want to be able to prove that something is or is not equitable, having a definition of equitable is really important to that. So I think this is having the potential for really high impact in our society. For sure. How about you, Jacob? Is there an executive order you like? I don't have any particular executive order, but I'll just add that uh, I think it's very telling how ineffective Trump's presidency was and the fact that literally within a week, Biden has pretty much undone his legacy. Right, right. Another big issue when we talk about state-level politics right now that's really in the news, and I know there's been a lot of a lot of public campaigns happening right now in real time, um, are about a really a school choice initiative that is being pushed by, by Governor Reynolds and the Republican Party, uh, which essentially is a, a voucher program, a charter schools program, and so on. And uh, I think it's Senate File 159. Uh, what are you guys' thoughts on that? I, I want to start with Caitlin, because I know it's uh, something that's near and dear to her heart. Yeah, I think uh, you guys introduced me as a lawyer, but I actually, um, uh, one of my most important roles is as a parent, and as a parent, I'm very vocal in my um, adoring support of our public schools and the experiences that they provide for our kids, and I I'm horrified by this bill, and I really think if more people understood the impact that it was going to have on our children and our on our communities, that we would be fighting a lot harder to to um, to defeat this bill. And you know, I just I, I'm curious to hear what you all think in Mount Pleasant. I know in Cedar Rapids, I worry every day about people leaving um, our urban school districts for suburban or rural school school districts, um, and this just makes it, you know, taking taking money from our public schools is really just draining the public pool so that nobody can swim in it. I I sort of have a mea culpa here a little bit. Um, When I was a lobbyist back with the Iowa Catholic Conference, we actually put some of the founding pieces of of what Governor Reynolds was trying to do into law with the school tuition organizations. And I saw firsthand, you know, the lobby, the the movement behind the school choice movement in general, the money, the resources. And quite frankly, it's not Iowans. It's the Friedman Foundation out of of Michigan. It's other school, school choice proponents that are trying to really just make it easier for people to go to religious schools and, and have the state pay for it. Um, it's, it's really disheartening to see how fast they are pushing this through the state legislature. 
And I think this will have real social engineering effects that are maybe underappreciated as well. And um, I worry, like I said, I worry about the impact on um, my children's urban school district, but even more so I'd be worried if I had a child going to a rural school that maybe is on the cusp of uh, closing every year because of declining enrollment, uh, declining funding, um, you know, an aging uh, facility. Driving $54 million away from our Iowa public schools is going to be absolutely devastating. We've already decimated public unions and, um, you know, there's, you know, there's increased attacks on IPERS. And, I, you know, I grew up in Independence, Iowa. I, I don't think I'm alone in saying that the public school is the, I don't know how to say this, guys. The public school is the hub of a small town in so many ways. It provides great jobs. It's one of the major social outlets for everybody in the community, and it's a source of pride. Caitlin, you, you mentioned IPERS. What is what is IPERS, just for our audience? Oh, sorry. Yeah, IPERS is the public pension program for teachers. Iowa Public Employees Retirement System. Right, IPERS. Of which I have been a member for 20 years. So my only other, my only concern with this, too, and I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned rural, um, you know, the devastation on rural communities. Let's say a town like Independence, which is a county seat in northeast Iowa. Uh, you got Mount Pleasant here as a county seat in southeast Iowa. Let's say we get a charter school. Uh, what kind of impact do you think having a charter school in Mount Pleasant would have, not only on the school, the public school in Mount Pleasant, but the surrounding school systems like New London Community School District, Wayland, or sorry, Waco, and, and Winfield? Any thoughts on that, Caitlin? I think it just continues to contribute to widening up economic gaps and opportunity gaps. If you are a parent who can't drive your child to school every day, pick your child up from school every day, um, and you need that public infrastructure of before and after school care, busing, school lunches, et cetera, uh, that's going to have a real impact on your ability to choose the best school for your child to go to in the area. And I, I can't be alone in thinking that we should be making our public schools the best schools in the area, not opening it up for more competition, hoping that better schools will emerge. We should be investing in the resources that we already have. Caitlin, are you aware of any, uh, I guess you could say background or information or research on um, school choice and its its kind of success or relative success in other areas when it's been adopted and No, and but used? I'm not above Googling it really quickly. That's absolutely <laughs> fun. And there she goes. Click, click, click. <laughs> you know, while she's Googling, you know, I had uh, about four years in Denver, Colorado, 10 years in Dallas, Texas. And I can tell you firsthand that the charter school movement decimated the urban public schools. Everybody left. And it was left in Denver. In Denver and in Dallas. If you had wealth and you were able to, to send your kids or have an extra parent at home that could drive your kids to the charter school a little farther away, you went because you got out of the, the public school system that maybe had a little more poverty, so on. So it was a, a, a little bit of convenience there, too, then, is what you're saying. I, I would say it's convenience. I'd say it's a way for, and I'm going to be frank, wealthy white people to get mm-hmm. out of the black schools. Mm-hmm. And, and they, people told me that point blank. And they do. And when that happens, the public schools just get worse. They get, they get the, the rankings go down, the ratings go down, the grades go down, and on average, as you can imagine, and then they receive less funding, and it just gets worse, and it spirals to the point that they decide to sort of blow it up. And it's like Caitlin said, too, the, the schools in Iowa especially, and I, I, would, I would venture to argue it's the same in any rural state, they are the, they are the social fabric of a community. 
And, you know, in the 80s and 90s, a lot of school districts consolidated in, in Iowa. A lot, of, a lot of small towns lost their schools. Um, I remember when, when I was growing up, the, the town that I grew up in had 900 people, and they wanted to consolidate our, our district with New London, the town up the road. Um, and, you know, they, the town fought back against that, and I think it's kept the town vibrant. And it's now, you know, it's, it's a sought-after school district. There's a lot of people coming into that district from other places. Um, but now you have this on the horizon again, and you're going to see that. There, there's not going to be any choice for that. And I can see how that happens in the urban areas for the very reason that you stated, Mike. But that's, that's going to have a, a much more negative impact that I don't think a lot of people realize in rural Iowa. Caitlin, how's your Google research coming? Well, I'm finding some old stuff. Um, I mean, what I'm seeing are a lot of headlines about it widening um, inequality. It lacks accountability. You know, the good thing about public education is that there's there's a lot of oversight and a lot of accountability about outcomes and um, practices. And so, you know, t funneling public money into private schools uh, without that oversight means that tax money is going to things that we as taxpayers may not know anything about or may not uh, may not be in support of. So it, it, there's a transparency issue there. No, I think those are all good. And, and Kellen mentioned something earlier while we were talking. And, and one thing we're really trying to avoid is to be the complainy podcast. We, we, actually, <laughs> yeah. we actually want to have good solutions. And to me, I think this one's sort of obvious. And I think it, it's fun public schools, right? I mean, is there, is there any other solutions that would be a, a better than let's actually adequately fund our public schools so they all succeed? Yeah, I mean, I, I think be a cheerleader for your public school. I think encourage your friends to send their children to your public school. If people are considering a private school, let them know that your public school would be glad to receive the money that they would be spending on tuition uh, in order to support the public school. I often think about that if um, the, the five or $10,000 a year you're paying in tuition for a private school, even if you donated half of that to your public school, it could, it could have some real impacts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as, as always, hold your elected officials accountable. Let them know what you care about and make sure that they can't just easily rubber stamp something like this without knowing that you're going to make it uncomfortable for them. Right. And we're literally in the middle of this happening in, in real time. We're recording this on, on Wednesday night, the 27th. Uh, our listeners probably won't hear this till at least the 28th uh, and later. And most likely this bill has already been through the Senate and, and it's on its way to the House. Uh, it's being pushed that quickly with so little debate and public conversation. So please call your representatives, call the governor's office, let them know that, that the way they're doing this, the lack of transparency, the speed of which they are taking apart our public school system in Iowa is, is really detrimental. Use resist bot, folks. And I would, resist bot. I would point out, too, this is not a partisan issue, despite the fact that, that it, it within our legislature it has become one. But if you're a conservative, this should concern you. It's, it's, uh, it's public use of your tax dollars going to private entities, as, as Caitlin mentioned, with no oversight. Um, that, 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 you shouldn't, you, that you shouldn't be in support of this. You know, yeah. that actually transitions really well into our big topic today. And, and that's really uh, the change in our community brands in rural America over the last uh, 20, 30 years. Uh, how people view rural America from other places, how we view ourselves 
uh, charter schools, public schools, lack of funding, it, it all plays a role in, in how we see ourselves and our brand identity as a community. And so, Kellen, I'm actually going to toss it over to you to, to sort of walk us through this a little bit. It's kind of two parts. Uh, I, I guess you could say it's three parts, really, based on uh, what we've been chatting about here. But ultimately, it all revolves around community branding. And I think a lot of us down here in Southeast Iowa, we recently had a open forum. We talked about this last week a little bit, but open forum with our elected officials in which several citizens raised the complaint of, hey, people outside of Henry County, people outside of rural counties, Midwest America, they view rural county Midwest America as a breeding ground for domestic terrorism or extremism, let's put it that way. And that's a problem, right? And at the end of the day, what really matters is can we bring investment dollars into the community? At the end of the day, we want to say Henry County is a place you want to locate your business. Henry County is a place you want to move. Henry County is a place you want to raise your family. How difficult is that? in today's political context, right? So that's that's one part of the, the, the conversation I'd like to have. The other part of it is specifically about, about Caitlin's uh, area expertise has to do with legal representation in, in rural areas. And I think, I think this speaks a lot to our, our conversation about building community. I think uh, you can't have a community if you don't have legal representation. If you, if you don't have a place where you can go to represent yourself legally, that's a problem. So I'd like to open up those those avenues of, of conversation and, and discussion, those those two in particular, and and perhaps a third that I'd like to kind of tack on here as as we we head into this conversation is how does this all involve this idea of our young and talented folks leaving the rural areas and going off to these big fancy schools to get graduate degrees. In other words, uh, uh, one way to put this is, a, is to say there's a little bit of a brain drain happening, right, in rural counties. So I'd like to open it up to a conversation on those kind of three topics. Thanks, Kellen. And, and those all sound like they're, they're very interconnected. And so let's start with the one that's probably most relevant to you, Caitlin, and that's the decreasing number of lawyers and attorneys in rural America and the lack of access to, to legal representation. Yes, um, I've been uh, on the board of governors at the Iowa State Bar Association now for several years, and I know at the state bar level and at the law school level, one major area of focus for both of those organizations is replacing rural lawyers with younger graduates. And it is a really difficult problem, and it's one that while there are lots of good ideas and programs that are being tried, it, it has not been solved. And just to give a statistic about this topic, there are uh, approximately 20% of the U.S. population lives in a rural area, while only about 2% of lawyers live in rural areas. And I know, you know, jokes about hating lawyers aside, uh, being able to have access to a lawyer gives you access to the legal system, which is fundamental for our democracy. If you don't have access to our legal system, you're missing out on opportunities of democracy, access to have your disputes resolved or to uh, move your uh, business forward. Well, so, Caitlin, what kind of what kind of yeah. impact might that have on a community when you when you have a situation where you just don't have that kind of representation available to you? Well, sometimes people resort to re representing themselves. Um, other times people uh, don't pursue legal action when they should. Uh, perhaps they engage in some self-help. 
or they're going to an attorney out of county and spending their dollars there. So, um, you know, it doesn't take long to do the math on the on that and realize that if a large percentage of the attorneys in Iowa live in Des Moines or Cedar Rapids, the money that the people in rural communities have to spend on legal services are not necessarily Staying going in back into the community to right. be spent at the restaurants in town, right? And, like and lawyers aren't cheap. That's, <laughs> lawyers are cheap. It's a it's a real I mean it's a real expenditure. The idea of spending local um, is is a concept that we should all want to promote when it comes to healthcare, legal services, professional services, um, retail, you know, all of the, all of the ways that we spend our paychecks each month. Um, that's not to say that there isn't a time or place to hire attorneys who are from bigger cities, but, you know, ideally you'd have somebody that's living in the community, sending their children to the schools in the community and using their money to reinvest in the community. Well, it, it seems to me that this would be, to, to sort of put this in perspective for the listener at home, uh, this is kind of the same as a, as a uh, to compare it to healthcare, which maybe more people can relate to, it's, a, it's an access issue, right? Uh, if, you don't, if you don't have uh, a physician, or a, I'm sorry, an attorney locally, um, that's going to prove to be a little more difficult. Uh, you, you don't see the, the days of the good country doctor are gone. Uh, you know, maybe you have your primary care doctor that you see, but if you, you know, have a heart problem, they send you to a cardiologist. It's kind of the same thing I would think in the legal world of of attorneys have varying levels of, of specialty and expertise. And if those aren't available, uh, that has that impact. Yeah, and I think uh, local professionals have their, have their finger on the pulse of their community in a way that uh, perhaps isn't true for people who are coming in from out of town or representing people from afar. So I think absolutely access to justice is, um, is the real problem here. Ooh, I like that term access to justice. You know, it could be used in two different ways. One being, do I have access to a lawyer in town? Can I, can I get a meeting? And, but also that idea of representation, our ability to actually connect with the legal system and have our rights be upheld and so on. Can you sort of break down as, as a professional lawyer uh, what that means to you? Yeah, I think at, its, at, at, at a fundamental level, access to justice is about eliminating the barriers that prevent people from understanding and exercising their rights, right? So that is, um, that is what lawyers do if you want to if you kind of want to distill it down to a soundbite um, lawyers are helping their clients make sure that they understand and are enforcing their rights whether it's with a criminal charge um, you know even a minor criminal charge you still need someone to let you know what your rights are and whether or not they've been violated and I don't think any of us want to live in communities where we don't where we don't have those things right where um, the police run roughshod over our uh, our constitutional rights or where, um, you know, f uh, large mortgage companies can file foreclosures and nobody ever points out the errors in the foreclosure, um, things like that. Uh, Kellen, you mentioned a, sort of a bigger picture of this, what these type of uh, situations, when we lose lawyers and when we lose medical professionals and we don't have those basic things that you find in almost every community, what it does to the community brand. Well, it's, it's really a, uh... It really trickles down. I mean, I say that it's a cliche statement, right? Trickle down. But at the end of the at the end of the day, it's absolutely true, right? It trickles down. So 
when you have people who are willing to invest in a community, they come in, they purchase a commercial building, they put a business in, they hire people. What do they want to do? They want to continue being a part of the community. They want to continue to sell products to the people of that community. So I don't see any negative, right, to allowing businesses to prosper and function. And so at the end of the day, I think at at the end of the day, I think what's so important, and I think a lot of people in rural communities lose, is that perspective, is that idea that people outside of Henry County, outside of Mount Pleasant, outside of rural Iowa, they look into rural Iowa, into Henry County, into Mount Pleasant, and they say, hey, what's going on over there? Do I want to put a plastics factory over there? Do I want to put a Walmart distribution center over there? Right? All these different questions that, that corporations ask. But let's ask ourselves, Southeast Iowa, would Henry County and Mount Pleasant, would those be the locations of a Walmart distribution today? If Sam Walton were around and kicking and he was saying, hey, where am I going to put my next Walmart distribution center? Would he come to Henry County the same way that he did what, 35 years ago? I don't know. But that's a question that Henry County should ask itself. That's a question that rural Americans should ask itself. What does our community look like? What does our brand look like? Are we attracting people or are we pushing people away? You know, it's interesting because, you know, I've served on a lot of chamber committees and so on. And it's amazing the amount of work that they do to attract people and, and that we put into this community to, to make it a great place to live. So I, I don't want to, we're going to get into some of those critical things and in a bit. But before we get there, I just want to mention, you know, we have an incredible town festival. It's not even a town festival. It's a, it's a regional festival at Old Threshers. We have PEO. We have Iowa Weston University. We have all these things that just absolutely make this town great. But then someone thinks, oh, this is a great place to live. And they drive by the middle school to bring their kid and see, you know, this is where you go to school, honey. And then there's a Confederate flag hanging across the street from the middle school. How do we solve these problems, guys? We got, we've, got a, we've, got a, we've got rural communities around the country. The brand is breeding grounds for domestic terrorism. How do we fix it? Yeah, I think, I think some of the problematic branding is, you know, that, it, that rural communities are less tolerant, that they're less diverse. Um, and, you know, as you point out, Kellen, that a few of the vocal, more radical, hateful types can damage the reputation of the whole community in a way that may not happen someplace bigger, right? Um, and I, you know, I'd always describe myself first and foremost as an enthusiastic Iowan. Like, I don't live in Iowa because I have to live in Iowa. I live in Iowa because I want to live in Iowa. And so I feel sad when I hear about some of the branding problems that our communities have. I know how wonderful it can be to live in a small town. Like you said, I grew up in Independence and, um, you know, I, I go to I go to court in Benton County or Buchanan County, and I can picture myself on those bright fall days, you know, having the law firm that's right across the street from the courthouse, maybe having my kids walk home from school and hang out in the back room until I'm done, um, you know, seeing everybody that I know at the local restaurants, just in a way that you, making those connections in a way that you don't have in a larger area. Um, and yet I, I don't live in that community, right? And um, 
you know, I think that one of the interesting parts of this conversation is why do people like me who feel positively about their small town experience not move there after graduation? And what is it that got you guys to move back there? And what, how can we capitalize on that? Right. How can we get more of that and make that happen um, at a, at a bigger or a faster rate? I, I just want to highlight one thing you said. We live in Iowa because we want to live in Iowa. The reality is we, we want to live in communities where we know everybody and um, where we right. like our kids run into their teachers at the supermarket. That's I right. Mean, I, I think those are the wonderful things about living that's in, absolutely in right. small that's, town Iowa. That's, that's, that's the primary reason that, that we ended up here. Right. Uh, Ten years ago, I'm and here because I want I want my kids to run into Jacob's kid at the at the supermarket. I want my kids to run into Mike's kid. It, it, it's it's just yeah, that's why we're here, right? I mean, I, community. I, I that's think, why we're here. I think this is a, a good time to address this in the sense of of you know we're we're on our third episode now, and and our our goal is to tackle rural issues. And one of the things that that we have received some feedback on is that we're not addressing those rural issues. Um, to, to, to use one description, whereas rural is a Mercedes-Benz in a, in a cornfield. And I don't think that's a fair assessment. Um, if, if you actually knew the three of us, um, that's, that's, that's far from the assessment of it. But we, we came here, we're, we're all here because we, we, like this, we like this community. We like that rural environment. Um, but but we, we also recognize that to keep this community vibrant, it has to be diverse. We can't we can't focus on on just the agriculture side of our economy here. We we have to have that diversity, and we have to have young professionals in this community to, to keep it moving forward. Um, I've been involved in a number of community events in the ten years that that I've been here, and the movers and shakers in this community are the young professionals, and and that's not to that's not to belittle the working class. No, they're we, they're important to that as well, and right. they're just as active and engaged in this community. But we have to. It, I, I'm sure that there's listeners right now that are saying, "Well, who cares if there's enough lawyers in in rural right. America?" Right. Like I'm struggling to get by, and lawyers do just fine. But this is important. This is just as important as being able to get doctors into rural areas, getting engineers into rural areas, getting teachers into rural areas. You don't realize you need the legal representation until you need it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And and when you're you're you know putting your trust together for your farm to figure out how it's going to be divided or up your when will, you die, or your will, <laughs> when, how to divvy up your assets, your children, or your whatever it may be. But but even beyond that, the, your legal disputes, right? So if you ha you have a legal dispute in what was it, Caitlin, 20, 20 counties in Iowa, you don't have a lawyer, you have to go outside of your county. That's that's a significant thing to leave your county for legal representation. Well, and I think the the reality too is that uh nobody wants well maybe not nobody the reality is that living in demographically homogenous areas uh is usually not what people are after we want communities that have professionals that have um farmers that have business people that have um you know working class folks that have people who um start businesses uh so i mean even just even just the idea of uh of wanting a, a wide, a wide variety of different people in your community. Uh, you know whether you whether you care about lawyers having jobs or not, or whether you care about um, your community having a lawyer. I, I guess I would just argue in favor of communities needing a wide diversity of of different 
um, so, professionals and demographics. So let's talk about yeah. solutions. So how do we get from where we are to a situation that we would think is, is acceptable for rural communities, right? What solutions might we, might we have when we're looking at it from a, a perspective of, say, Henry, Henry County citizens who want to improve their overall legal representation? The solutions that the Bar Association at the, and that the law schools are currently working on primarily revolve around the economics of rural practice by giving students um, some loan forgiveness or stipends. Because what we haven't talked about yet in this conversation is how uh, the how student loans really do create a, a quite a big urban-rural barrier, right? J jobs in urban areas tend to pay more, and so students who are burdened with student loan debt often feel like they have no choice but to seek out the highest paying job. And so therefore they they won't even look in some of the communities that they might otherwise like to live because of that that crushing debt. And this gets to a bigger conversation about student debt as a whole and what it, that, that's doing to our society. But within Iowa, I think programs that um, supporting programs that provide loan forgiveness or stipends to, to lawyers who want to relocate to rural areas is really important because that helps overcome the economic barriers. I also think um, the communities themselves being enthusiastic and wanting to recruit professionals is important, right? You want you want to welcome outsiders. You want you want someone to be able to come to your community and start uh, start a family and see themselves living there for decades. And so, Again, we keep coming back to this branding conversation that Kellen brought up, but uh, making sure that your community has the kind of brand that's going to recruit the people that you want to move into your community. Um, and I'm going to circle back to our conversation earlier about public schools, right? If you are a person who went to college, got a graduate degree, and plans to start a family, in all likelihood, you're a person who cares about education for your children and what that quality is going to look like. And so evaluating this, the community's investment in their public schools, I think, has to be part of that equation, too. Absolutely. And, and, and in terms of this, like, community investment, but speak a little bit, too, about the, um, we have a situation where we need to draw professionals to an area. Right, but it might be a situation where a professional uh, has a spouse that's uh, also a professional, mm -hmm. right? So we might have a yeah. situation where we need to, to draw somebody to a rural area, but how do we accommodate their spouse who's always who's also a professional? Ooh, that's a good question, Kellen. Um, I think I think thinking creatively, perhaps about qualifications for certain jobs. Just as a separate topic, I'm. Um, very enthusiastic about looking at non-traditional backgrounds and trainings for people to fill positions. And so I think that that's an area where you could make use of that, right? Could someone who has a background in business and other leadership schools perhaps be uh, a value-add to the school or a value-add um, uh, to, to the Chamber of Commerce or something like that? Um, when it comes to more scientific or maybe um, um, backgrounds that are just really not going to find a fit in the community, that's where I really think investing in good technology in the community can have a real impact. So making sure that your community um, is supporting uh, in whatever way it can having high-speed internet access and um, uh, quality roads so that commuting could be easier and more possible. Well, I, I think we have a, a prime example of that right here in Southeast Iowa. I mean, this this 
Mount Pleasant is situated much differently than another community about 45 minutes to the south west of us. Um, the difference between Mount Pleasant and a little town called Kiyosakwa. You know, Kiyosakwa is the county seat, but it's isolated. And mm. it doesn't have those same types of, of opportunities that, that Mount Pleasant does being at the intersection of two major highways. And, and uh, that's, that's definitely one of the challenges, I think, in rural America is, is, is that isolation. You're, you, you, you mentioned infrastructure and being able to commute. Um, not every place has the same type of, of uh, uh, infrastructure that we have available here in Mount Pleasant yeah. compared to, to other places in Iowa and across the country. Well, and also, Jacob, I wonder if that remoteness or that, that lack of infrastructure is one of the causes of our lack of understanding the value of diversity and the importance of diversity in terms of the health and wellness of a community. I don't know. I mean, wrapped up in all of this is everybody's susceptibility to fear of people who are different from them or people who have different backgrounds. And so I think that uh, messaging that is outwardly supportive of diversity as a concept and specifically um, of diverse people, I think can only help a community. It's free and easy to celebrate diversity and hold it out as a value. And so um, I think communities are really doing themselves a disservice if they do not, because I think you, while you always know the people who are mad at you that are willing to tell you about it, you're not going to hear from the people that passed on relocating to your community because they didn't see what they wanted to see when it came to those topics. So let me, let me describe something to you there real quick and, and get your thoughts. We have, imagine you had a small sort of fun town with a, that retail space where you could, right downtown, where you could open up your, your law firm and, and walk around on those fall days and your kids could hang out in the back after school. Imagine that that town had a, a small university, uh, only 500, 600 students, pretty, pretty diverse though, uh, with an incredible set of, uh, of, of humanities programs and business school and so on there. Imagine that, that you had a, a symphony that was based out of that town, as well as a group called uh, Iowa Winds that uh, supports immigrant rights in, in the local immigrant communities. Uh, we had a PFLAG chapter that supports LGBTQ plus uh, efforts. We have um, a, a tremendous focus on service and volunteerism uh, that with, with a history that goes back 150, uh, 200 years almost um, on, on service. And, and we have a history of uh, having the very first women lawyer ever to pass the bar in, in the country, uh, right here in, in this town. So with that kind of history and that kind of diversity, would that be attractive to you as a place to, to relocate to? Yes. And there's a part of me that really wishes somebody would have come to me. And I know this sounds kind of conceited, but if somebody had come to me, say, I don't know, five to 10 years ago and said, Hey, we want you here. Here's, here's the setup that we've got. I was primed to say yes to that at that stage of my life. Instead, I made some other choices and kind of stayed in my same community. But I think that um, there's an overemphasis on recruiting fresh college graduates and not enough emphasis on recruiting people that are kind of past that fresh college grad stage and sort of settling into that. I'm starting my family stage and that's the place I see rural America as having a huge opportunity. At the time where your apartment's getting too small or you're sick of commuting um, or your 
picturing yourself like with the overwhelming task of selecting from 25 different daycares and, you know, dozens of different um, elementary school districts, I think had a rural practitioner reached out to me about joining their law firm in a place like Mount Pleasant or Vinton or Anamosa or Independence or list any amount, you know, any number of those small towns, I think, I think I would have said yes at that time. And so I know that there would be other me's out there who are 28 to 32 that you guys should be recruiting from the inclusion and diversity aspect of it. What, what, what is, how does, how does the small town fix this notion? Right. I I think that the, the notion of inclusion and diversity has become somewhat of a dirty word in some regards and, and otherwise good natured people that, that notion of bringing that up, that a, that a community needs more inclusion and diversity uh, that tends to turn them off. So how do we change that conversation to where uh, inclusion and diversity, how, how, do we, how do we sell that? How do we make that to be a priority for a community? Because I think that uh, we, we've seen it locally and we've, we've seen it in other cities that, um, that, that that discussion comes up and you kind of have that segment of the population that goes, that's, that's just liberal crap. And how do, we, how do we convince people that it's, it's not just liberal crap? It's, it's a legitimate issue that needs to be addressed. And, and it's important to the economic development of a community. And how do we have those conversations? Well, I think we're doing it right now, if, if we're being frank. The, the people that do poo-poo it, if you will, are usually the loudest and they're usually the ones that really don't give a crap about it. But I think the vast majority of people in our community, they do want to see more culture. I think they do want to see more arts. They do want to see more diversity in our community, but they're just not the loudest about it. And they need voices like yours, like like Kellen's, like mine, but especially like Caitlin's, saying, listen, it's okay to celebrate this stuff. And it is good for our communities, and it's only going to make our communities better. Would that be a good assessment, I, Caitlin? Yeah, and I think there's a tendency when you say, well, we've, you know, when we've raised the issue before, there's some people that are cranky about it, or there are people that detract from it, without recognizing that by failing to raise it at all, there's there's dozens or perhaps hundreds of people that are that are dismissing your your community out of hand, right? So I guess another another way of saying it is that your um Yes, you know, change is always uncomfortable and raising new topics is always going to lead to people um, expressing their discomfort, but you're often uh, way further behind if you never raise it in the first place. When it, when it comes to how, how do you make people see that it's important, I mean, gosh, I guess I, I, guess I have always valued the, the history in Iowa that um, allowed us to be, um, and you guys, are, I, mean, I might have to fact check this, but I um, I believe we were one of the first states that gave a uh, slave his freedom um, in our Iowa Supreme Court. Um, I believe we were on the forefront of, of admitting women to the um, to law school and to the Iowa Bar Association. So, so for the listeners at home, to that to that end, the first female attorney was was admitted to the bar right here in Mount Pleasant. Yes, Arabella Mansfield. Right. That's right. right. And just to summarize real quick, it sounds like there's some real opportunities to, to utilize what we have already uh, in terms of our history and our diversity and our, our, our stories from our, from, our, from our towns. 
that we can use to attract people if we, if we hit them at the right time in their lives and so on. So it sounds like there's some very good strategies. Sadly, I think our, our time has come to an end, everybody. Uh, this has been an incredible interview. The time has flown by. We've appreciated everything you've had to say, Caitlin. Uh, we're just been here. We're just nodding nonstop while you're talking. Uh, so, so thank you for that. And thank you for sort of teaching us a little bit today. Um, any final thoughts? That um, I think what you guys are doing is really important work, and I think continuing to have conversations, even if they're tough, um, is something that we all should really embrace the opportunity for. Uh, I I love you guys. I'm glad I had this opportunity, and I would love to come on the podcast again. Thanks, you all. It's been great. Well, thank you, Caitlin, and we'll have you on as often as you're willing to be on. So that concludes our, our third episode of Three Rural White Guys. We hope uh, you'll join us again next week. And on behalf of, of Jacob, Kellen, and myself, thanks for listening.